0: Our thanks as always to those who have fed and watered us today. We appreciate us very much your care of us and thank you for all you do for us week by week when we're here. Really value that and this whole question of standing in awe of God is hugely important because it will colour our lives and shape our futures if we truly begin to recognise who this God really is. So to that purpose, we are going to read from verse 15 of Joshua chapter 3 this evening and read through to the end of verse 3 of the fourth chapter. So Joshua chapter 3, reading from verse 15. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest, yet... As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, or we call it now the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them, to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priest stood and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. And that will be sufficient for our initial reading. One of the things that the Bible constantly brings to us is the majesty and power of God over the natural world which he has created. I can remember when I was a student, one of my lecturers saying, fairly boldly to the nine of us who were in that particular seminar, he's saying, do any of you people believe that Jesus Christ ever walked on water? And I stuck my hand up, as was the normal way of response in those days. And he said, Glasgow, why do you believe that? And I said, well, I believe Jesus Christ is God. And he said, why should God walk on water? And the words came to me, to demonstrate that he is who he claims to be. To demonstrate that he is who he claims to be. And the Lord Jesus, in his miracle, constantly demonstrated that he had authority over nature, he had authority over disease, he had authority over the natural world, in a way, not to demonstrate that he was doing magic. The Bible is never interested in magic. It's nothing to do with what God does. But to demonstrate the reality of his control. So when he changed water into wine, he was accelerating a process which you, you and I know occurs naturally. But what the Lord Jesus did was he created billions of carbon atoms in a moment. And those carbon carbon atoms combined with the water that had been put into the great jugs at that time and immediately became wine, not only wine but the best wine with all the signs of maturity that you would expect. Whenever God created Adam, He created a man who was mature. And if you had seen him after creation the following day, if you'd been around, which of course was impossible, but if you had been, you'd have seen Adam and thought to yourself, here's a mature man. But he was just made yesterday. Whenever men look at the age of the earth, they say the earth must be impossibly mature. But whenever God made the earth, he made it mature. It would all have the signs of age, just as Adam would have looked 30 or 40 years old, whatever he was, the day after his creation. And it's important, I think, for our young people and each of us as we get older to recognize that God is always who he has demonstrated and claimed himself to be. So when we come across a miracle like this one that we have here in Joshua chapter 3, we shouldn't be surprised because God remains powerful. God remains awesome. And we stand in awe of him because of his majesty and greatness and ability. So what happens here, and I say this particularly to our younger people, what happens here is God's intervention at this particular time in the flow of the River Jordan. As far as we know, it's the only time it ever happened in the River Jordan's history. You'll notice how closely the scripture is in relation to when it happened. And you have in verse 15 where our reading began now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. And if you went to the Jordan today, you would find exactly the same thing. As the snows thaw, on Mount Hermon and flows down into the early part of the Jordan and then eventually into the Sea of Galilee and then from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. In that particular situation, the river floods where it flows slowly. You'll remember that the Dead Sea is... Anybody tell me how many feet it is below sea level? Those of you who were taught such things in your geography. I think it's 600 feet... And incidentally, when the Lord returns, one of the things that will happen is that that valley will be flooded. But that's another story altogether. 600 feet below sea level. So it meanders. The river meanders very slowly once it comes out of the Sea of Galilee and travels down into the Dead Sea. And it's at that point where Jericho is. I was privileged to be there in 1987. And Jericho is right at the top of the Dead Sea, the extreme northern edge. Of the Dead Sea. So, here at this point, where the river is a mile wide when it's in flood, it's at this point, that this remarkable miracle, this intervention of God takes place. And let's just follow the text. I'm not going to go into it in great detail tonight, but just to, to emphasize how God caused this to come about. As soon as the priests, and you'll notice the little word yet, even though it was a mile wide at this time. Yet, as soon as the priests who had carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. Now, it didn't stop flowing just at the point where the priest's, water, where the priest's feet touched the water. The scripture is very clear about this. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, which is quite a long way further up the valley. I estimated, and I didn't calculate it, but just from the maps I had, here's another job for you. Where are you? Roy and Judith. <laughs> if you could tell us sometime how far Zarathan is from Jericho, that would be a huge help. But I reckon it was about 10 or 12 miles. So don't feel that when the, the Israelites crossed here, that there was this huge pile of water immediately on the right-hand side. As they were coming, you remember, from the east, traveling west, so the Jordan was flowing from their right to their left. Don't imagine this big heap of water there. God, in his mercy, dammed the river further up as the priests' feet touched the river directly opposite Jericho. And I just love that, because it meant that the children of Israel weren't thinking to themselves, Oh, this big wall of water is liable to collapse on us. But God had cleared a wide passage with the priests standing in the middle of the river. And as we saw this morning, they were carrying this, which was the statement of the presence of God amongst his people, the Ark of the Covenant. And they were carrying that, and they carried it right into the middle of the riverbed, about 800 yards. And those of you here this morning will remember that the Israelites were commanded to keep a distance between them and the Ark of the Covenant of about a thousand yards. So they're all witnesses to this. The way in which God was intervening in their history in order to bring about his purpose of bringing them across the Jordan exactly opposite Jericho, which was the most powerfully fortified town or city in the land of Canaan, the southern part of the land of Canaan at this time. Because God has got, I use the term carefully, God has got connected thoughts. You know, he didn't just bring them across opposite Jericho because that was some sort of notion he had. God knew what he was going to do to Jericho before the people crossed the the river. And they become part of his ongoing plan, part of his ongoing demonstration of his authority in relation to the nations that were around in Canaan at that time. I mentioned before that the Amorites, who were the main grouping at this point in, in uh, Canaan's geography, the Amorites were in the constant um, practice of offering their children to a god called Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. And Molech, according to the Amorites, demanded a child sacrifice. So they lit a fire at the feet of the god. It had a huge gaping mouth, and the child was placed through the mouth to be burned in the, in the feet, at the feet of the, of the god Molech. So this was a very corrupt nation, comprised of various tribes, but hugely corrupt. And God was going to use the Israelites in order to act as a goad to destroy the nations in Canaan. If you trace the history of the Amorites, and this is not a task for anyone, but if you trace the history of the Amorites, you'll discover that they were hugely iniquitous. They got up to all sorts of foul practices. I've just mentioned one of them this evening. Because God was going to use the nation to bring his judgment upon these peoples because of their wickedness. And that is often what God did in Israel's history. So the water from upstream stopped flowing, verse 16, piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathal. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea was completely cut off. So, and you'll notice all these connections. So, the people crossed over opposite Jericho. I cannot imagine how they felt. If you and I had been organizing a campaign in order to break our way into Canaan we wouldn't have crossed the Jordan at the strongest stronghold in the whole of the nation but God was doing what God does and the reason why you and I can trust him with our tiny lives is because God always knows what he's doing you know we often question it and we say why why does this happen to me or why didn't such and such happen Why didn't I pass my A-level physics so that I could do medicine, which was all of my desire? And I talked to the Lord about it for a long time. And it took me a long time to recognize that he had a plan for my life that I knew nothing about. And it's continuing to trust him in those situations. You take a step with God and then find out what the next step is. He's not going to give you a blueprint for your life but he will continue to reveal himself to you as you live for him. So they cross over right opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. As I said, never happened again. Just this one point in history, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the the Promises, the Ark of the Testament of the Lord. And they stand firm in the dry ground. And you'll notice this little phrase, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground, God never does things by half. He always accomplishes his purpose. And all he requires of his people is that they do what they're told. You know, it, it's so easy for us to complicate our Christianity. But it's not complicated. You know, observe to do all that I command you was the word which came to Joshua in chapter 1, as you'll remember when we looked at it. Observe to do all that I command you. And the Lord Jesus, when he's talking to His disciples in the upper room, he says, you demonstrate that you are my disciples if you do what I command. You know, you don't demonstrate you're a Christian by singing hymns. You don't demonstrate you're a Christian by going to church, though you should. But you demonstrate you're a Christian by doing what God tells you to do. And whenever you're reading the Scripture and something comes into your heart from the Scripture and you recognize it's God speaking to you, all he requires from us at that point is to obey him. To obey him and to walk with him. That particular morning, the Israelites had absolutely no idea how they were going to get across the River Jordan. By the evening they were across the river Jordan because they had done what God had told them to do. I was thinking I mentioned it, I think this, last Sunday, I I would have been really glad if I wasn't a priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant on this particular occasion. Can you imagine you're coming this to this river which is you know it's in spate. It's running as quickly as it ever does. It's a mile wide. And all you've got is the token of God's presence on your shoulders. And you have to put your toes in the water before anything happens. Don't you? You can't sort of stand back about 10 yards and say, well, Lord, if you're going to do something, you better do it soon. Because the Lord has said, as soon as your feet touch the water, then there'll be a way open to you. And it's so difficult. You're approaching a situation, you're dealing with something in your Christian life right now, and you know the Lord's talking to you about it, and you know what he would have you do, the, the difficult thing is the next step. And he'll show the way when you take the step, but he doesn't show the way before you take the step. That's what faith's about. It's about trusting God to do what God does, rather than telling God what we want him to do. And here, all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And that which would have killed them without God's intervention. God makes a passageway through and brings them into this land which he has promised to give them. But they have to walk there. And you're saying, oh, it was easy. Yeah. But you could see the water had stopped now how did you know as you started to cross the, the valley yourself that the water wasn't going to start flowing again? It's easy because you know the history. It's not easy in the moment. You know, I used to think, after i have been a Christian for 60 odd years, that somehow or other it would get easier. It doesn't. You know, you young people who have come to faith recently recognize you're going to have to trust the Lord all your life. And it will mean all sorts of difficult choices and all sorts of difficult steps. But I tell you something, it isn't half worthwhile. You can walk with him, trust him, and go where he's leading you. And then you read in verse in chapter 4, and you'll notice it's just a continual story. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, he'd mentioned it earlier, choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests stood and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay the night. So each tribe had one person who could witness to what God had done in the middle of the River Jordan. They carried a real stone or rock out of the middle of the riverbed and they took it across the Jordan and they put it down that night. And you think, what on earth is that about? Let me read to you this. Don't put the text up, Kevin. Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on a shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel, uh, the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When across the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And we discover later on in the chapter that they built them as a cairn on the Jordan, on the west side of the River Jordan. So once you were in Israel, it was possible for you, even if you lived in the tribe of Gad, right up in the northwest of the country, possible for you to say to your mom and dad. You know, you told me those stories about the stones, the stones that were right in the middle of the River Jordan. How can I know it's true? And your mum and dad could say to you, when you go for a wee journey down through Israel and go the 130 miles down to the Jericho and the borders of the River Jordan, and you'll see there 12 stones. And your uncle Joshua, or Fred, or whatever his name happened to be, He carried that stone out of the River Jordan and it's in that pile. God brought all the tribes across, 12 stones, one for each tribe. And every tribe has got a memorial on this side of the Jordan to remind you of what God has done. The teaching's so evident, isn't it? What what are we going to do in a moment, those of us who are Christians? We're going to take bread and wine as a statement of the covenant, the new covenant that the Lord Jesus has made with us. Because the blood is the new covenant in my blood, the Lord Jesus said. He's established a memorial. We do this in memory of him. We do this to remind us every Sunday of what God has done. It's, it's self-evident, if I can put it a like glass. I can remember when it first dawned on me that you can trace the continuity of this feast, this bread and wine. You can trace this right back to the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed. You can trace it through the history of the New Testament. If you know any church history as you start reading it, you'll discover that the one thing particularly that the church continued to commemorate day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, was the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Generation upon generation upon generation of Christians have taken bread. Generation upon generation upon generation of Christians have drunk wine. As a statement of the fact that we remember him. And we do this, the Bible says, until he comes. So you have the continuity from his betrayal until the time that the Lord returns when groups of Christians all over the world all down through history, have taken wine and taken bread as a statement of their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's why they had 12 stones on the west side of the Jordan. This is what God has done. That's what we're saying tonight. This is what God has done. He's established a new covenant, not an old covenant. It was going to be renewed incidentally in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua, which we probably won't deal with in any detail. But the old covenant was was to be established immediately after they'd crossed the Jordan because God was in the process of fulfilling his promise to them and giving them this land. And you and I have been promised a whole new future, a new land. You know an old hymn, In the land of fadeless day lies the city four square. you ever sung that here? Probably not. It's too old. But, you know, it's true. We're going to a new country. We're going to a new place that the Lord has prepared for us. And as we remember him, we're stating our trust in the fact that he's going to continue to lead us day by day and bring us eventually into his presence in a new and fresh way. God bless you.